Jordan, are you excited? Because I'm excited. Uh, we have perhaps one of our greatest high-profile headliner guests that we've had in the history of this podcast. It's going to add immediate credibility, maybe put our podcast over the top. We got Tom Brady as the guest here today, man. Like, this is so unbelievable. His first interview since his knee surgeries. Uh, this is going to be groundbreaking, and uh, I, for one, am very much looking forward to it. Yeah, not a lot of people knew he made the trip out to Hawaii, kind of got away from things, kept it very hush-hush. He's one of like the 37 private planes, I think, down at the airports. <laughs> Ran into him, and this is going to work out great, I think. Yeah, I didn't realize. I guess he's actually caught our podcast. He's like familiar with it. And so, uh, yeah, we got a Super Bowl champ multiple times over as our guest. And if you haven't figured out by now, we are recording this on April Fool's Day. And so that is our very, very futile attempt at April Fool's humor here for this episode of the podcast. Have you ever had an April Fool's prank done on you or have you ever been a part of one, Jordan? Not really. Not really. I was never a big prankster. Um, pretty, you know, keep it loose all the time kind of guy, but <laughs> I never, I never was a big prankster, and I never, I guess maybe my friends weren't either. And maybe that kind of went hand in hand. Uh, but not, nah, I, I don't really have a great like prank story that I pulled off or was pulled on me. I've fallen for a bunch of the ones like on the internet, like, uh, sure, even, I think, sure. <laughs> even today I had to do a double take, maybe even a triple take on, uh, they had Stu Gatz was announcing that he was parting ways with Levitard. And I was like, oh no, say it ain't so. And then I realized like, oh, it's April 1st. Come on, dummy, get it together, Kanoa. Jeez Louise. But yeah, in fact, not only is that our attempt at humor for uh, an April Fool's prank uh, regarding our guest, but uh, we don't have any guests. And that's not an April Fool's joke. Uh, maybe the joke is on you, the listeners, because now you have to listen to us for the rest of the duration of this podcast. Just me and you, Jordan. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's the cruel joke. <laughs> April Fool's, everybody. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's get into our <laughs> game time discussions because we got a whole lot of topics that we want to get to here. And so we start off with a little UH baseball. And what a difference a week makes. Last week at this time, Jordan, we were talking about how the Rainbow Baseball team has been ranked number 30th by collegiate baseball now they're riding a five-game losing streak and that included a four-game sweep in the hands of uc irvine on the road last weekend uh, so as they prepare now to take on nationally ranked and preseason big west conference favorite uc santa barbara at les murakami stadium this weekend for a four-game set when you look back on what has transpired here over the last five games for hawaii particularly last weekend did baseball just happen or is it something more that needs to perhaps be a little more concerning for the fan base? Yeah, there's several things that you can factor in, right? It was only the second road trip of the season, the first one in about a month after they opened the season in Arizona against Arizona State, taking one of three there. Uh, you know, it was the first matchup against, you know, a team that had been a little more seasoned on the season, on the year, right? Because you had played a, an Arizona State team that hadn't played anybody prior, really. Uh, you had played a, an HBU team that was opening the season, a UH Hilo team that was opening the season, a Long Beach State team that was also mm -hmm. opening their season, even though it was the start of Big West Conference play. And so Irvine had a little bit more mileage on their tires as they got into that series. And they've obviously been lights out with what they've done in the first couple of weeks of Big West Conference play. But all that being said, you, you got to be concerned, right? I don't think there's any two ways about it. They got 10 run rules. Like that's the stuff you hear of like high school games. They got, I didn't even know there was a 10 run rule in big West conference <laughs> play. That's how rare I think this is. And they scored 10 runs. 
and still got run ruled 20 to 10 in seven innings. And I know that's game four of a four game set over three days. And you get into that fourth game and things get weird, right? Guy teams run out of pitching, all kinds of craziness, but still you get 10 run ruled in a conference game in a league that people were talking about after the way that the season started, after being ranked 30th, right. By certain publications in the country, you just can't do that. You can't lay an egg. You can't get swept in a four-game series. You can't get run-ruled. I know two of the games were fairly competitive, even in a shutout in game one. I was at game three. It was 5-4, 4-3, or something like that. But, I mean, they got they got kind of hammered in games two and four, obviously. And, and again, if, if you're fancying yourself as somebody that's going to finish in the top third of the conference, that's going to threaten for postseason play, that was their real first true test because the game against Long Beach State, right, there were some fortuitous bounces and things of that nature. Uh, they they got to be licking their wounds, the baseball bows. That was, that was not a good showing after you get some pub, right, some national recognition in the rankings. You go on the road. You play one of the premier teams in the conference in the Anteaters, and you do that. Yeah, that's, that's a bad look. It shows how quickly things can get away from you when you go up against a quality team. And the Big West Conference, frankly, is full of quality teams. I think when you look at any losing streak, especially when you talk about baseball that has such a randomness about it, right? You have to look at the way a team loses. And so you're right. Two of those four games were actually pretty closely contested. And I think you look at that and you say, hey, look, that could have possibly gone either way. Those were a couple of, if not quality starts, some very solid starts by Hawaii pitching. Uh, But then when you look at the games where the margin of defeat was more extended, uh, then you see, okay, well, what happened there? And I think what's ironic about that last game of the series, the one that they got 10 run ruled. And yes, the Big West Conference, I guess as a counterbalance to the fact that they're playing double headers on Saturdays and two nine inning double headers at that major league baseball's not even playing nine inning double headers still this season I guess the way to counterbalance that is all right well if a team is up by 10 then shut the game down and so when you look at that game what was ironic about it was Hawaii was down big and then stormed back at the midsection of that game showed a lot of grit and a lot of character to get back into it uh, only to then turn around and see UC Irvine rip off a bunch of runs in the seventh and, and be able to basically uh, close up shop a little early that day. And so, you know, you, you credit Hawaii for displaying that kind of character, right? I think we've seen some of that feistiness this season from this team. But then you also have to lament the fact that they perhaps were pressing a little bit as the series was going on, or at least maybe in some of the stretches of these games. Coach Trapasso is saying, hey, look, you know, for the players, it's not necessarily a situation where they're down on themselves. It's not a situation where they were going into games pressing. The, the players get over it pretty quickly. Right. I mean, he says they're they're two bites out of their postgame sandwich and two Instagram posts away from feeling just fine about everything. It's the coaches that tend to wear it a little bit more. And so, you know, I I look at that and I say, okay, that's 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 pretty funny. And I, I think there is something to that. Right. I think these are players that have shown in this very short time in the season the ability to shake off. Uh, some of the negativity will they be able to turn that around and do that again here as they prepare for a UC Santa Barbara team that's going to come in with just a stable of live power arms on the mound I mean they recruit prototypical pitching talent Uh, they have been hitting the ball uh, like crazy this year I think one of the uh, I don't want to say good 
pieces of news for Hawaii because you never want to refer to something like this as good news. But uh, one of their best players, in fact, uh, the guy that coached Chekets, the head coach for UC Santa Barbara, uh, actually regards as their best player, Marcos Castanon. Uh, he's out injured and probably out for about four weeks. And so he's not going to be there uh, in the lineup against Hawaii. And so you wonder, all right, is that an opportunity uh, for the Bulls to, to kind of get back on course and be competitive again? Because Mike Trapasso says, hey, look, when, when we're keeping our pitches down in the zone, that usually sets up for us to compete. So can they do that this week? It's going to be a huge test, uh, but I think it's an incredible opportunity to try to turn things around against a team that comes in as vaunted with such a strong reputation as UC Santa Barbara. I think the greater concern for Hawaii is how beat up they are, right? Dallas Duarte, uh, their starting catcher, he injured his shoulder in the first game of the series. And so he's going to be out for some time, it sounds like. So now you have to rely on the veteran Tyler Murray to be your primary catcher. He's probably going to catch maybe three of the four games in each series while Duarte is gone. Some of the other guys that you would be counting on, Jared Quant, he's a freshman, another freshman, I know a Cardenas. Uh, so I think the injury side of it, what Hawaii lost in, in all of that at UC Irvine might be the thing that requires a little bit more concern, certainly a little more consideration than even the losing streak itself because hey look UC Santa Barbara got swept in a four-game series at home against Oregon so it can happen even to the team that's at the top of the preseason rate rankings in the Big West all right so we move on to pro baseball and well opening day in the bigs my man and you had five players with Hawaii ties on opening day major league rosters including three Colton Wong of the Brewers, Isaiah Kiner-Falefa of the Rangers, and UH alum Josh Rojas of the Diamondbacks penciled in as leadoff hitters here on opening day. Now, the other two, of course, Kurt Suzuki of the Angels, Ka'ai Tom of the A's. You have a few guys who maybe would be on active rosters like Kirby Yates and Rico Garcia, a couple of pitchers who are both out injured. Uh, but all this considered opening day of Major League Baseball, the first of 162 games. Do you get worked up about it? Yeah, I was pretty. I was pretty excited. I usually am. Uh, I, I like you, a big baseball fan, right? And and baseball kind of allows you to to take it in slowly because of the 162 games, right? You don't dive right into it, say necessarily like a football season or something like that. But there are certain mileposts in a baseball season, right? Whether it's opening day, whether it's Memorial Day, whether it's Labor Day right, that kind of signal different points throughout the season, the all-star break. Um, and you kind of weave in and out in terms of how deep you are in terms of following things day by day and whatnot. But my Cubbies are, are back in there after last season, right? It was only a 60-game season. It was abbreviated. It would, We all know how weird the year was. Uh, but to, to have the goal of, hey, they're going to play a full 162 games, there was some normalcy to it. And the, also the fact that, you know, there were – a fair amount of fans at different stadiums uh, across the country. You know, you can debate as to, well, you know, okay, what's the right amount of fans? And, okay, you know, at the Cubs, for instance, it, it was vaccinated folks, vaccinated healthcare workers that they really allowed into Wrigley Field for their opener against the Pirates. But, yeah, there's something about, there's something about opening day. It's, it's special, right? It's nostalgic, I think, in a lot of ways. And, and you think the, the, the James Earl Jones speech in, in 
in field of dreams, right? Baseball, right? It's, it's, it's always been baseball and, and there's something to it, right? There's something that, that makes you feel good inside when it comes to opening day, hope springs eternal for a lot of places around the country. It is literally sort of the signaling of spring, even though we had blizzards at different places here on opening day, but no, I, I love opening day. I think it's one of the great um, pastimes, if you will, for, for America's pastime. Opening day is cool just because it is sort of a little more extravagant uh, but then after opening day, it's like, uh, I'll see you after the All-Star break. Like, it's just, I don't know. There's just so many games. But we do tend to follow some of the storylines that involve players with Hawaii ties. And since you have some players in new locations, you have a new fresh face in Ka'ai Tom, you know, Colton Wong with Milwaukee. I think those are storylines that you'll want to, to follow along uh, as this season goes on, even very early on in the season in games that – you know, let's face it, uh, aren't the most meaningful in the grand scheme of things. But I do think that, you know, this season sets up for a potential return to a little bit more of a normal vibe about pro baseball, right? I mean, they're still going to be applying, like we said, the seven-inning doubleheaders. They're still going to be applying the extra-inning rules uh, with runners starting on second base. We already saw that actually uh, in play uh, with a couple of the games here uh, today as we're recording this on Major League Baseball's opening day. Uh, and so I, I, think, I think that's what's cool about it is, you know, last year was such a unique year, the abbreviated schedule. This year starts off feeling a little more normal and I like normal, even if the normal is a really long marathon baseball season that's hard to stay totally involved with as a fan. Uh, normal as it pertains to Major League Baseball feels kind of nice, right? It feels kind of cushy, doesn't it? It's comfortable. I agree. I agree, right? It's that warm feeling inside and, and everything that comes with the, the rhythm, the pace, right? Everything so far up to this point maybe outside the NFL season when it comes to sports, right? And our sort of sports circadian rhythm had been thrown off, including baseball in a lot of ways. Uh, but to have this back and to, to, to have a bit of normalcy, I think, it, I think it's good for everybody's like collective mental health, right? And sort of social, emotional well-being here. It's, it's good. I like it. I, I'm with you. Anything, anything normal, it, it's comforting. Yeah, it's amazing what you find yourself missing when you go through a pandemic like we've gone through right and this this really this experience that just has been really traumatic for everybody uh, and and you know I'm watching some of the games today and the pace of play is really slow and that's something that we always debate right is you know this generation of younger people right young adults they're they're more involved with instant gratification there there needs to be something the technology continues to evolve uh, there needs to be something to speed up the games and i'm watching these games and 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 these long pauses between pitches and i'm like this isn't that bad like this is just kind of nice it's okay to slow life down a little bit that's what sort of baseball uh, represents in many ways and that's also very much an indication that I'm getting old when you start appreciating how <laughs> slow baseball is that means you're getting up there man all right we switch gears to a little bit of University of Hawaii volleyball still unbeaten top-ranked Rainbow Warriors took a pair of matches off UC San Diego last weekend so they're 9-0 and and now they host number seven Long Beach State this week for a pair of matches at Simplify Arena at Stan Sheriff Center now the last time these two teams met up, you may remember, it was in the national championship match in 2019, won by Long Beach. It was played on their home floor at the Pyramid. Uh, but these two programs have faced off in some titanic battles 
in recent years. Obviously, the Hawaii Long Beach State volleyball rivalry goes back decades on both the men's and women's side. So when you look at this matchup here, right, it's a little bit of a different vibe, certainly as it pertains to Long Beach State. Gone are names like DeFalco and Tuaninga and Ensing. Do you consider this, though, to still perhaps be UH's primary rival in college volleyball? Yeah, I think so. You mentioned those names, right? DeFalco, Tuaninga. And I, and I think that's part of the rivalry because when I hear those names, I just get nightmares. <laughs> nightmares, man. It's like, geez, TJ DeFalco, how good was that guy? That guy oh was unbelievable. goodness. Just, he was one of those that, you know, there were some, some folks that have come through over the years. I remember some of those old UCLA guys, you kind of just, you kind of just had a, they grinded your gears in a different way. DeFalco was so good, you couldn't help but sort of appreciate, like, holy smokes, this guy is amazing. Um, and you couldn't quite hate him in the same way that some past, you know, villains, quote unquote, have come through, you know, maybe the Stan Sheriff Center. And so I think that's part of the rivalry, right? It's like these guys who haunt you still, and you are just grateful that they are gone. Uh, the good news for Hawaii is they got a lot of those guys still around. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe Stein von Tilburg is gone, but, you know, Rado's still here, and Colton Cowell and Patrick Gassman. And so, yeah, I think so. And I think a big part of it is the conference affiliation, right? And, and since the, the Big West volleyball playing schools broke off from the, the old MPSF, the Mountain Pacific Sports Federation, uh, and sort of separated from those schools, the basically the Pac-12 and the West Coast Conference schools that, that made up the rest of that membership. And so I think the proximity, not, not just geographically, but with the fact that they are playing each other yearly again, but within a sort of refined, not new conference, but uh, you know, newly formed men's volleyball conference in the Big West. And so I think for, for that reason, right, and I think that's what, you know, for, for, for other University of Hawaii sports, right? You talk about BYU and BYU still, obviously, in men's volleyball. We saw the last season and, and them being one and two and them being one and two again this year. Um, but much like when those schools broke apart, well, really, you know, BYU and the Mountain West broke off from the WAC, I think it, the, the rivalry took a hit a little bit, right? They weren't mm-hmm. playing every year. They weren't necessarily as predominant in terms of scheduling and things like that. And so I think, you know, from a volleyball standpoint, you can talk about old rivalries of whether it's UCLA or BYU or, you know, any of the California schools really. But I think for, for Long Beach being in conference since the big West started sponsoring the sport, they've been the two best programs and, and, you know, very, may very well be again here this season and, and we'll get a good taste of what the 49ers bring or whatever their branding is. Now the beach, they dropped that. That's a whole nother conversation. Um, <laughs> But I, I, I agree. I, I think they are. I think they are the rival for the University of Hawaii men's volleyball team, which I think is a great thing. I think they're a worthy adversary for the Rainbow Warriors. They most definitely are. And I, I think people may, you don't want to take these guys lightly ever, right? I mean, they have an incredible coach, which with all of this Olympic international experience, uh, they have obviously a great program. Uh, they're not perhaps as loaded as they were a couple of years ago, right? I mean, they dominated this thing for a few years running. They had arguably one of the greatest men's volleyball teams of all time. People are looking at this weekend as a chance to maybe exercise some of those bad feelings and memories like you're alluding to. Um, and I do think the opportunity is there for Hawaii because, as you mentioned, you know they have a bunch of that core back. They have a bunch of guys who benefit from the experience of those marathon battles. Uh, so I think the opportunity is there for them to do that. Uh, but that always makes me a little bit concerned as if like, all right, I don't know if we should be taking these guys too lightly because they are the beach as they have been rebranded, except for in baseball where they're the dirtbags. It's really confusing. 
But Long Beach State, I, I agree. I, I think they'd have to be placed on, on that pedestal as, as maybe the number one rival. You know, men's volleyball is a little fluid. So, so you sort of get in and out of rivalries. BYU, UCLA, USC, they're always going to be there. But I always read a, a rivalry from the perspective of the other program. Like, it, it can only, in my opinion, really be a rivalry if the other program considers you to be that level rival as well. And so it was always funny. We looked at BYU as the big rival in football, those years where we were able to finally get those cathartic victories over the Cougars. And then, you know, you hear Lavelle Edwards back in the day talk about Hawaii and was like, oh, yeah, yeah, those, those were good games. And they didn't really look at Hawaii in the same way as they did Utah or some of their other primary rivals. I do think Long Beach State probably has some of that, those vibes with Hawaii, though. They realize they're the two flagships, I would argue, of the Big West Conference, of this new entity, right? They're the, they're, they're the big dogs within it. Uh, and so I do think that they look at Hawaii as, as their greatest threat to that dominance. Uh, so, yeah, right now, that's the number one rivalry. All right, well, speaking of rivalries, uh, it maybe doesn't get any better than North Carolina and Duke in men's basketball. Going to be a little different here going forward because Roy Williams is retiring from his post as head coach at North Carolina after 33 years as a head coach at both UNC and Kansas. Guy won three national titles for the Tar Heels. He made four Final Fours with the Jayhawks. Also claimed multiple Maui Jim Maui Invitational titles. Uh, But he said he is, quote, no longer the right man for the job. A a very sort of self-introspective and self-aware statement. Not sure if you agree with his assessment of that, Jordan. But UNC did lose its opening round tournament game to Wisconsin. Roy Williams' only first round exit in 30 NCAA tournament appearances. So, is he right? Is Roy Williams no longer the right man for the North Carolina job? Boy, I, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with Coach here. You know, I, I, I thought it was really weird, and it, it seemed like an April Fool's joke coming out on a day like today uh, as we record this on the first. <laughs> you're right. You're right. But, you know, and maybe it still is. Maybe he's just playing the long game. He's going he's gonna to break the news to everybody tomorrow uh, that this, this was a giant April Fool's joke. It, it just would go like down a, as one of the greatest April Fool's It would be. Ever. It would yeah. be. I'm all for it. Yeah. It seems like an odd time for him to leave, right? Just, it's obviously a recurring refrain that it's, you know, it's the COVID year, right? It's like, well, I, don't, I don't really hold it too much against any program, including some of the Blue Bloods. Um, that didn't really do much this year, right? I mean, all the Blue Bloods were kind of down. Kentucky, Duke, North Carolina. Um, it seems it seems strange that this would be the year that he heads out because, look, they've been to national championship games. They've won national championships very recently. Like, they had been amongst the most consistent programs in college basketball in, what, the last seven years, right? What is it, them, Villanova, maybe Gonzaga in the mix, you know, having beaten Gonzaga four years ago in the national championship game. Like, they were more so than Kentucky, more so than Duke, quite honestly. It, in the last handful of years, they had been the most successful of those blue bloods. And so, and amongst the programs in the country. So I, I thought it was awfully weird, the, the timing of it all. And, and sometimes for these guys, right, they've been doing it for so long. They've had so much success. You never know when the right time is, right? And for them, it's kind of just a feeling perhaps. And, and maybe he's just ready to go. And he's had some health um, issues as well physically. You know, he, he hasn't been quite where I think he had wanted to be, um, you know, and the, the, the rigors and demands that come along with that job. But yeah, I mean, he's, he's one of the legends in the game. And, and you know, 
to, to see him just kind of quietly step away is, is a bit strange. And now all of a sudden, right, that job becomes open. It's like, wow, that North Carolina, like it's, it's UNC, it's, it's Chapel Hill, it's Dean Smith, it's Roy Williams, and a couple of guys in between that, that they, they don't remember too well. But now that's a, that's a huge, huge job that all of a sudden becomes open. I'd imagine it'd go to a Carolina guy, maybe even somebody on his staff. Um, but yeah, that's, that's big, big news. Yeah, I think Roy Williams, in my opinion, is always going to be considered just like one of the nicest guys in that industry, right? In such a cutthroat, results-based type of endeavor that is college basketball. Here was this guy who was just this consummate sweetheart. And, you know, I think he did deservedly so bring about some criticism when it came to you know, some of the curriculum issues and controversies in the background at North Carolina. Uh, and so, you know, all that aside, notwithstanding, uh, I personally was able to deal with Roy Williams on a multitude of occasions, called a couple of North Carolina games, including when they came over to play UH several years ago, and had a little time uh, to just talk story with him while he was sitting on the side watching his uh, Tar Heels practice, uh, gearing up for that game against Hawaii, which preceded their showing in the Maui Invitational that year. And he was just phenomenal. I mean, just was such a down-to-earth, humble man. Uh, especially for someone who was so accomplished as a head coach. And so that's, that's the thing I'm going to take away and remember how cool Roy Williams was. Uh, and you're right. You know, when he says he's no longer the right man for the job, I wonder where he's coming from on that. Uh, North Carolina, you know, we talked about that rivalry with Duke. They made the tournament. Duke didn't make the tournament. And you can say, yeah, COVID got in the way down the stretch, but there was already a question as to whether or not Duke was going to make it in. You look at North Carolina's success, and it's been pretty consistent. I would say the one thing you could point out, even though it was almost by design, was the fact that he didn't bring in perennially the one-and-done type of talent players, right? He was much more old school about Let's bring in players that we can develop. They would win with guys who were like third-year, fourth-year types of talents, not as many of the one-and-done guys that you see going through the Kentucky and now Duke programs. For the most part, they were recruiting a different brand of basketball player compared to some of the other Blue Bloods. Um, and I'm not sure if maybe the fan base surrounding that program, some of the other powers that be, look at that and got a little impatient and said, hey, we should be battling for the Zions and the R.J. Barretts every year as well. Maybe that's part of it. Uh, but for him to say he's no longer the right man for the job, I find that hard to believe because I can guarantee you, even though it may be a futile attempt, there will be a phone call made to somebody that is in the orbit of Mark Few from North Carolina to just test the soup and see if there's any way that can pull him uh, out of that program. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's right, it's North Carolina. Like, they, they can kind of call anybody, right? I mean, when, you, you'll hear names from the NBA, guys like Brad Stevens, right? You will hear kind of anybody from college basketball. Mark Few, I think the, the profile fits perfect. Right. I don't know if he'd ever leave Spokane like yeah, that, that's so. such a good gig for him. I mean, even guys like Jay Wright, right, who who beat Roy Williams <laughs> in the national championship game just a handful of years ago. But I mean, I, I think it's that's the cachet of North Carolina. Right. You could argue there is no bigger job in college basketball than the North Carolina job. And so that's why I think, you know, you're going to you're going to hear those names, the Jay Wrights of the world, Porter Mosier, right, from from Loyola. Um, you know, and so some of these big names, maybe Chris Beard can do what he did when he left, uh, was it Arkansas Little Rock? Then he spent like a, a like 14 days <laughs> in Vegas. And then all of a sudden he was at Texas tech. They, the reports are that he's taking the Texas job. Maybe if North Carolina calls coming, he can, uh, he can put the horns down and he can, he can jet on over the Chapel Hill. 
Kelvin Sampson's another guy. You just figure yeah. you know, here's here he is bringing a team into the Final Four again, and it's like, all right, maybe he's a guy that it's time for him to get back into the traditional Power Five conference coaches fraternity. Uh, there's also a dude that coaches at Iona. His name is Rick Patino. He has some pretty good experience. Do you want to dive into that pool? I'm not sure if you're North Carolina, uh, but it is a very intriguing job and will be uh, really interesting to see how this plays out. All right, speaking of college basketball, the Final Four is set. Uh, I imagine your bracket is as trashed as mine, although I did get Gonzaga and Baylor right. Uh, not that that was a really uh, out on the limb pick on either front. They were the two favorites really all season long. But you have Gonzaga versus UCLA. UCLA, an 11 seed. What a story they have become. They were likened to NC State from back in 83, according to Dick Vitale. Uh, they go from the first four to the final four. Then you have in the other game, Houston, the aforementioned uh, Calvin Sampson led Cougars going up against Baylor in an all-Texas semifinal. That's pretty fantastic. Uh, first off, how is your bracket doing? And do you still take Gonzaga over the rest of this now Final Four field? Oh, the bracket's just awful. Just atrocious. I got Gonzaga. That, that's all I got. I had <laughs> Gonzaga and Michigan kind of riding until that final day. And I was like, all right, if I get half of the Final Four, I feel pretty good. And then UCLA just keeps on winning, right? And, and if anybody tells you they had UCLA in their bracket, they're lying. They're absolutely lying to your face. Uh, so my bracket is just just rubbish. Uh, I had Illinois in the final four. Uh, I thought the Illinois Loyola winner was going to make the final four. That went out the window by the Sweet 16. So, yeah, my, my bracket's just just all over the place. But I, I, I still take a tag. Like, I, I still think they are the best team in that field, maybe by a, a, a sizable margin. And obviously what Baylor is doing is really, really impressive. And they've sort of been the consensus number two team all year in the country. And obviously a good call by you to have them in the final four, Houston is kind of a grind team, right? They, they grind you. They, they don't shoot it all that well, but they play defense. UCLA, they've caught magic in a bottle. No doubt about that. But you see what Gonzaga is doing to some of these teams, like pretty decent teams. They, you know, and I know they, they had a fairly easy path on paper, but you know, Oklahoma's a pretty good team and always a tough out under long Kruger. There's another guy who's retiring maybe a little surprisingly uh, leaving the Sooners, you know, and obviously what USC had kind of done, I think, and what the Mobleys and what they presented inside and Drew Timmy is just out there, like taking them to the YMCA and just pulling up and unders and spin moves. <laughs> I just kind of, I always think now, after you mentioned it on a podcast a few weeks ago, is that they got two guys who start from, two white guys to start from the wear headbands and they're by far the best team in the country. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense, but man, they are good. They are good. They are balanced. You can't really keep them down scoring-wise. Maybe for a couple minutes stretch, but they're so powerful. Jalen Suggs is an absolute stud. I love them. I, I love that Gonzaga team. I, I, I'd, I'd be shocked if they didn't win it all. Yeah, I'm with you. You know, I, we keep thinking, all right, they're going to run into that one super athletic team that's going to use their length and range to finally disrupt what Gonzaga does offensively. That was supposed to be USC. They had one of the best defenses in the country. They had the length and the range and the athleticism behind the Mobley brothers to disrupt Gonzaga, to bother Drew Timmy and company. And what did Gonzaga do? They carved them up. Drew Timmy is doing his mustache celebration and just about every other celebration after every made basket. He was big early. Uh, and Gonzaga went on to win that, that game convincingly. So, yeah, I, I just don't see right now a team that can beat them. I mean, of course it can happen. But they are clearly, in my opinion, the most 
polished team in terms of the way they play with one another at both the offensive and defensive end. Because it's not like they're playing bad defense. We keep focusing on what they're doing offensively because they're scoring so many points. But they played some really, really good defense as well. I think they're the one team of this bunch of four uh, that you look at and you say, even better than Baylor, their offense is just so refined and calculated. Baylor has the athletes. If they meet up in the championship game, I think that would be uh, incredible to see because they have some really, really uh, talented individual scorers that can ad-lib latent clocks. And so, you know, that might be the key to success against Gonzaga. But every time we seem to have a matchup where we're convinced, all right, these are the guys, they're comprised in a way that will finally disrupt the Zags and what they're trying to do. Uh, Gonzaga just shows up and, and, and dusts them away. So, uh, yeah, it's got to be the Zags. All right, well, this is kind of an Uji story, but we got to touch on it because it involves one of the superstars in the NFL, Deshaun Watson. The troubles continue. The Texans quarterback facing allegations of sexual misconduct from over 20 women now who claim to have been victimized by Watson's behavior while serving as his masseuse. Now, this is a really weird curveball that was thrown by his lawyer, Rusty Hardin. You may recognize the name. He also represented Roger Clemens back in the day. Rusty Hardin brings out 18 masseuses who claim to have worked on Watson and vouch for him as not having conducted himself inappropriately in their encounters. First off, how many massages does this guy get? He must be like the most limber athlete in all of professional sports. The other thing is... Does that defense, even if the only attempt is to try to somehow garner favor in the court of public opinion, does that defense make any sense to you? Because I would argue that bringing out 18 masseuses who, unlike the 21 who have filed official lawsuits against Deshaun Watson, say, oh, no, he was fine, is akin to a guy who stabbed a bunch of people. And then his lawyer's like, oh, yeah, but how about these dozen people who he didn't stab? Like, it doesn't make any sense, really. To me, does it make any sense to you? It, not really. Not really. I think that's a really good analogy. It, it, it's, this is so difficult, right? Because they're all civil lawsuits. There hasn't been anything that has been brought criminally. You, you get into these situations and, and it's a lot of hearsay, right? It is a lot of he said, she said, for lack of a better term than the, just that colloquialism and not trying to make light of it. It's just, it, we will see, right? I mean, our settlements in the future, will this actually go to litigation in, you know, the civil court, what comes of it, what it, the NFL, I'm sure, will conduct its investigation. There are weird links between the attorney and like Texans ownership. I mean, it's just, the whole thing is a mess. And you hope, you know, you hope to high heavens that, that there's nothing you know, improper that has gone on. And, and if there was, you know, justice will be served. And, and, uh, and you hope that that conclusion is reached, whatever that conclusion is. But yeah, the, the whole thing is just, it's just so messy, right? And the number of um, lawsuits that have been filed here is obviously eye-opening, right? The, the pattern of all of this is, is very strange. <laughs> I'm with you. Like, I, I, it just, I, a lot of these guys just have sort of professional hired therapists and chiropractors and, and physical therapists and all kinds of things that, you know, it, you don't just go to sort of the, the random massage place that it just, the whole thing is weird. And I, I just don't know what to make of it. Again, there's 
nothing criminal involved here as of yet anyway. That's sort of been the statements put out by law enforcement up to this point. Maybe something will lead there. We don't know. Um, and, and then you throw in the whole football element right up the, the whole day. Hey, it was the hottest commodity on the trade market. And all of a sudden that's the, the brakes are slammed on that. And obviously the football part of it is, is, you know, second fiddle to, to what's going on in his personal life. But yeah, the, the whole thing is just, it is strange. It is strange. It is messy. And I don't know what to wake up at man. This does seem a little strange. Uh, I agree with you. You know, we're not in a position to cast judgment. Uh, you would hope that the legal system would be able to bring out the truth. Uh, I do think, though, that objectively that is a strange public defense for Rusty Harden to take. Like, you know, he robbed a bank, but let me show you several banks that my client did not rob. Like, that just, that doesn't make any sense to me. That, that just seems like such an odd way to go about trying to salvage the name of your client publicly. There's a lot that is at stake here. And so you're right, we shouldn't minimize that, but I, I don't think that it is beyond our ability, even just as podcasters or members of the media or however you want to characterize us, uh, to point at that and say, that's just strange. Like that whole situation seems really, really weird. All right, so again, no guests. Sorry for those who fast-forwarded after our intro. Uh, it was just an April Fool's joke. No Tom Brady on the podcast. Domino's Hawaii main topping. We're actually going to delve a little bit into the sports journalism industry uh, and which direction this thing is trending. Uh, it's a big topic to, to try to unpack. Uh, we're going to at least try to touch on it as it pertains to, I think, some pretty legitimate news that came as a surprise to so many people. Fur Lewis, longtime columnist and writer for the Honolulu Star Advertiser, uh, he announced suddenly his retirement in a column in the newspaper. The advertiser has been looking to diversify with ancillary streaming programming. You have Chad Owen's show, The CO2 Rundown. I think there's another podcast that's coming out as well. Uh, my question to you, though, is, is Ferd has, whatever your opinion of some of his stances have, has been, I think he has clearly represented himself to be one of the challengers of the status quo in Hawaii sports. Uh, and I think that having an entity like that is important in the dynamic of covering sports in any said geographical location. So is there a reason for concern, you think? Uh, because there are some, I think, we're, we're seeing in some corners, you're seeing even on a national scale, this sort of recalibration of sports as more of an area of recreation that maybe doesn't require the same level of critical coverage. Heck, ESPN, which for the longest time prided itself on having a true credible journalistic arm in the form of shows like Outside the Lines and some of its general sports center uh, reporting, but you have very specific stories like those that have involved Conor McGregor uh, that are very controversial in nature. And because of ESPN's branding or rights holding relationship with the UFC has actually shied away from some of that coverage, right? It sort of leads into the topic of access journalism. And so I'm wondering if you feel like there's a reason for concern indicated by in part the retirement of, a, of an entity like Ferd Lewis for sports coverage in Hawaii? No, I, I, think, I think it is still a very valuable aspect of the press, right? I mean, when you're talking about the biggest show in town with the University of Hawaii Athletics, right, in, in the big entity that it is, other systems and, and 
projects that are in place from a sporting standpoint, you know, whether it be the stadium or anything like that, right? It, the checks and balances, like that is sort of the, the role to me of the press. And it has been since, since they started the printing press way back when, and, and not necessarily to, to call out everything, right? But to, to, to be fair, to examine, to explore when, when it is warranted. And, and you need a little bit of that checks and balances, right? It can't all be positive because nothing is always positive. Nothing is absolutely as it should be every time. And, and so, yeah, losing somebody like Ferd, you know, from, from the biggest publication in the state and, and really a state, true statewide newspaper, um, one of the very few in the country, that's a big deal, right? And, and even, even Paul Arnett, right? Didn't he go to the Masters every year, Paul Arnett? He, yeah, he is, has. Is that the yeah. tournament, right? So that I, is, wonder, yeah. I wonder if he's going coming up here later this month. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how that all works with the, you know, having been the editor and things of that nature, but uh, it was always kind of fun talking to him after he came back from Augusta. But it, it is a trend, right? It, it really is. And, and whether, you, whether you want to talk about sports media or if you want to sort of wade into the waters of like just media in general and the big money business that it has become and how media entities operate and how they cover things, how they generate clicks, views, you know, eyeballs, how they generate revenue, right? Because that, that's what it is. It has become big business. And, and obviously it is so difficult now if you're in the print business, right? If you're in the newspaper business, if you're in television, there are billions of dollars to be made. If you're running a newspaper, not quite the same. And so it's not necessarily apples to apples there, but, but you're seeing it, right? And, and it is about, in a lot of ways, the bottom line, and it is a lot uh, about, in a lot of ways, profit margins and, and making the most money for some of these big entities, right? Whether it's ESPN, whether it's Fox Sports or, or any of the other networks that just are sort of general cable news networks, right? And, and you're seeing it, and right, I mean, the, the Bob Lees, the, the Jeremy Shapps, right? Those kind of investigative reporting, um, I still enjoy real sports right on HBO with, with Brian Gumbel and his team of, of investigative journalists, because it's sort of a pure approach in that sense. Now, is it killing the ratings? Is it bringing a ton of revenue, say for HBO, which is a little different, obviously, sort of being a subscription service in that sense. But that, that's, that's what it is. And and you get into these television contracts, right? Whether ESPN has run into that with, with things they have aired in relation to the NFL, things that they have done in relation to the UFC, sort of these monolithic entities, right? That, that bring them a lot of revenue and would stand to, to cost them a lot of money if they sort of cross them the wrong way. And it's, it's an ugly reality, I think, of the business um, in that sense. And, and what we are seeing as sort of the new model, right, when you to kind of circle this back to, to the print industry and, and the newspaper industry, right, it is so much less about picking up the newspaper now as it is reading things online or even getting the same information you would from reading a column or an article. Um, you're doing it via this, via this platform, via this medium. It's podcasts, right? That, that, is, that is a big part of it. Um, and so maybe we're in part guilty <laughs> of sort of this transition, but it, it, there's so much to that. And, and I think the evolution and, and, you know, writing a column in the newspaper isn't the, the reach that it used to be. Whereas having an opinion podcast or an opinion radio show or a television show just reaches so many more people is so much more impactful and, and sadly just makes, you know, more sense financially for a lot of institutions. That's the big one, right? It, it's, it's the finance aspect of all of this, right? It has forced the hand of all of these companies and organizations that otherwise would be utilizing some of their t 
talents, right? Some of their writers, some of their journalists in ways that would be more exploratory or investigative. I, I think you're right. You know, ESPN was a prime example. Clearly their focus now is on accumulating the rights to be the broadcasters for various high profile sports organizations like the NFL, like the UFC. They are becoming a rights holding company that's becoming the primary part of their portfolio and so where does the journalism fit in all of that uh and so you know it behooves any entity i, I don't i don't necessarily begrudge the star advertiser for trying to diversify as a means to try to survive in this landscape as you mentioned where you can't just be the old printing press paper and survive anymore you, you have to find other means streaming or otherwise to reach the public sort of take your product to them as opposed to wait for them to come to you i think though that is unfortunately something that is going to negatively impact the quality of journalism overall that is done, especially in a place like Hawaii, where there has been, uh, since the merging of the papers, one dominant publication. Uh, and so when you lose someone like Ferd Lewis, who, who is retiring, and, and best to him, I, I, I have always admired him. I've always admired his resolve. That's the thing that I'm going to lament. That's the thing that I, I think could be a void that will be felt going forward, depending on how the advertiser goes about filling it if they decide to do so at all uh but yeah i think it's it's this this desire this maybe even necessity on the part of all of these media companies to diversify to become conglomerates that serve a lot of different interests it's hard then to justify the hard-nosed journalistic angle amid all of that when what you've created at the end of the day is a money-making mechanism all right, time to get to our best and worst, brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii, Maui's premier full-service refuse company, offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll-off containers for commercial construction and residential use. Family-owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community, Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management. Visit wasteprohawaii.com for services information. Let's get into our best. And I'm going to start because mine is flippant, but uh, also maybe the only time I'll be able to use this all season long, my Mets are among the unbeatens after opening day. And that is because their game against the Nationals got postponed due to COVID. So for the first time in a sentence that mentions COVID, I'm going to go, woohoo, the Mets are unbeaten, baby. Soak it in. Soak it in. It is opening day. We, we, we talked about this earlier in the podcast and, and like you were talking about, right? When are you tuning back in? All-star break? Yeah, Memorial yeah, Day. What, what it, okay, well then, then you're good. For all you know, they're going to be in first place until then. You check back, and they may not be, but you know, the next three and a half months, you'll be good. Hope still springs eternal. All right, what's your best? Uh, yeah, my best. I am going with the Cubbies, who are no longer in first place in the NL Central. Uh, no longer undefeated on the season either. They got two hits today scored three runs but only had two hits against the pirates who were supposed to be atrocious um but the the, the dust are the cubbies uh here in year two under david ross but uh, we'll not dwell on that my one of my worst uh, a while back was len casper's longtime tv play-by-play -play voice for the cubs moving on he is now the radio play-by-play -play voice of the chicago white Sox, and that was a big blow to cubs fans we were very very sad disheartened at the fact that this guy who had been you know synonymous with the cubs for for over a decade um, but it was nice. This had been announced a while ago, and obviously he had been doing spring training. Is Mahuk Shambi, John Shambi, like stalwart at ESPN, calling 
baseball games, college basketball games, one of the best in the biz. And I, I think as a baseball announcer, it's really terrific. He's the new Cubs play-by-play guy on TV. And so we're just spoiled as Cubs fans. They may not have won today, but yeah, Book Shambi's the guy. And it was, it was just kind of nice. I thought I'd miss Len Casper, and I still do. Um, but it eased the ball a lot when you got John Shambi back there. Calling the calling the game for for the Cubbies on the Marquee Sports Network, which is the uh, the Cubs television network. So that was nice. That was nice. Yeah, Boog is the man. Uh, got to meet him and actually sort of work not alongside him, but in his sphere uh, when he came down for the Hawaiian Airlines Diamond Head Classic a couple of years. Uh, he was the consummate pro then. He was still sort of growing his career, and uh, now he's a big time Major League Baseball announcer in addition to several other sports. So uh, yeah, Boog Shambi. Uh, he's the guy, dude. He's the guy. And he sort of carries the mantle for the uh, redheaded, not necessarily made for television looking guy. So we can all appreciate that, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, some of us more than others, for sure. All right. Uh, let's get to our <laughs> let's get to our worst Baylor women's basketball for me. So first off, the Bears got absolutely hosed. On the last second, no call against UConn. That was when Dijanae Carrington got fouled by not one, but two Huskies players. Uh, and I, this whole notion of you don't call that foul at that time of the game or the refs should let the players decide the game never made any sense to me. Like, those are the rules of the game. Like, if the ball goes out of bounds, would the ref ever be expected to not make an out-of-bounds call? Like, if it's the rule of the game, it's the rule of the game. And this whole thing about let the players decide, you know, part of what the players are deciding is whether or not to foul on a play, right? Like, that's something that is also partly in their control. So, uh, I never understood those excuses and those reasons for not calling a foul late in the game. And that one was, in my opinion, as egregious as they come. Now, moving over to another aspect of my worst, it's sort of a twofold here, both involving Baylor women's basketball head coach Kim Mulkey, who after that game suggested the NCAA should do away with COVID testing for the final four to assure that players don't have to sit out the games just in case they test positive, you know? And it's kind of like, um, come on. <laughs> you got to be joking, right? Like, we've come all this way, right? We've learned all this. We've trusted the science all this time. And now you're going to be like, let's just ignore all of that and put everybody potentially at some unknown risk because, you know, we want them to, to play ball. And I, I get it. This is a special time. These are young people. There are a lot of people who are now uh, vaccinated. Like, I, I understand the, the temptation to sort of ease up a little bit, but I mean, come on, Kim Mulkey. Like, I, I think I'm going to trust the scientists on this one as opposed to a basketball coach, but that might be just me. What a game that was. Wildly entertaining game. Absolute foul. Um, <laughs> it came down to that, but it was probably the 19-0 run between the third and the fourth quarters for UConn that really cost Baylor the game where all of a sudden they went down from up 10 to down 9. Um, but, that, yeah, absolutely a foul. Absolutely a foul at the end of the ball game. That final four is loaded, by the way, on the women's side. South Carolina, Stanford, UConn, and Arizona making, I think, their first ever final four on the women's side. That's going to be a lot of fun. That, that tips off tomorrow, Friday, that is, as we record this. You know, you have officiated some basketball in your day, Jordan. And so what is your uh, opinion on the uh, let the players decide the game, don't call a foul at that time? Have you ever swallowed a whistle late in a game like that? Uh, I, I would say I, I, it's not cut and dry, right? It's not black and white. It shouldn't be. My, my philosophy has always been make sure it's a foul. Like you have to be abs- late in the game. You want to let the players decide it. That doesn't mean don't blow your whistle <laughs> because the players decided 
that they, two of them were going to foul the shooter. And so you call the foul. Now, if, if, if it's a little lighter contact or if, if you know, it, you're going you're gonna to have a longer leash, if you will, longer rope. You're going to have a little bit more leeway when it comes to those calls late in games. But if it's a blatant foul, you have to call. And so but you're doing everything you can to get out of the way as an official late in the game to me. And if a foul happens, you call the foul. But you don't, have, you don't go into it thinking, I'm not calling the foul or, you know, or the vice versa. You, you, you try to get out of the way, and if there's a foul, you call it. But, but yeah, it, it, ticky-tack stuff, not for the late game stuff. Not for the late game. But if somebody gets hammered, call the foul. <laughs> like it, it's, to, to me, it's kind of simple, but maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah, I'm in full agreement there. Um, you think that they should not test for COVID in this uh, Final Four? <laughs> Kim Mulkey, man, she was. That is a that, serious question, by the way. That, that is a serious that question. Take in. She was holding that take in all tournament, right? Look, the, the Baylor's from Texas. The tournaments in Texas, like they, they, they got different rules down there, man. It's, it's, it's like a different. It's like a different world down in Texas. Um, probably a bad idea. Just, just probably a bad idea when when everything breaks down uh, to it. Because there are some other teams out there like, well, why didn't we just cancel the COVID testing before the tournament? We're all in the same place. It's all San Antonio like proper that they're doing this tournament. And maybe maybe back off a little bit there. Um, does Kim Mulkey not look like sort of what you would imagine the women's equivalent of Rick Patino? Like just a little, there's a little something that's like, oh, I don't know if everything's on the up and up. They can coach some basketball. They can recruit. They win a lot of basketball games. But there's a little something there that you're like, yeah, I don't know if this is all. On the up and up, all, all on the up and up. Yeah, it, you know, even it was in their, the like, white, a, it was the white yeah. suit patrolling the sidelines, like just yelling at her players. That was the great part about it too, because there's nobody in the stand, so you can hear everything. And uh, she is, she's one tough, she's one tough lady. Let me tell you, let me I tell you, she was giving her. it to yeah. some of her players, giving it to some of her players. There was a little, there was a little Patino esque vibes, like there, there might be, you know, they're, they're running the family business or something. You know, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, like, you know, a propensity maybe in other situations to wear like a pinky ring or something like this. You know, yeah, there's a lot yeah. of, there's a lot of bada bing and oh yeah, type of yeah. expressions. Yeah, and even yeah. like the, the way they, they, they look, right, the face construction is like they're a little gaunt. It's like you can really see the cheekbones. They're very evident. Yeah. Uh, there it's like, is they, it's like they've way. seen some yeah. things. They've seen some things that they don't want to tell you about. They don't want to tell you about. And, and you know what? I don't want to know either. I don't want to know. Yeah, yeah. I, I would not want to cross. There. There's a little I would not want to cross Kim Monkey. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, she has extra room in her trunk, if you know what I mean. You know, like in in her car uh, trunk space, there's a little extra room that could fit. You know, a body or two. That's all we're yeah. trying to say. She's yeah. she's got a job to do. Don't get in the way of her doing her job. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're just we're trying to just skirt around this, but we're both saying Kim Monkey could be a murderous mobster. That's just, just what we're trying to say here, along with Rick Patino. You know, it reminds me of another thing. This is kind of an offshoot that's similar, is uh, God bless the late Pat Summit. Um, and obviously, you know, we exalt uh, Riley Wallace for uh, his greatness here uh, in the islands and, and just a good dude. But I always thought Pat Summit and Riley Wallace looked really similar to one another. <laughs> like, they look like they could be brother yeah. and sister. Like, absolutely. Yeah. Go, you go Google that, podcast land listeners. Pat had better hair than Riley. That was the only difference. Without a doubt. Yeah, that's not even, yeah, you can't even argue that. All right, that's our best and worst. Brought to you by Waze Pro Hawaii, Maui-owned, Maui-operated for 
Molly's people. That's it for us. Thanks once again to Tom Brady for joining us. Hit us up on Twitter at Canola, at Jordan Helly, or at Talk Sports 808. Jordan, uh, it's been fun. Enjoy the final four. Happy Easter, my man. And I'll uh, talk to you next week. Same to you, man. Take care.